I've heard it said at a dinner party, don't talk about religion or politics. Well, I want to tell you in a church setting, we talk a lot about Jesus Christ and we don't talk much about politics. But yet, here we are. We started a teaching series last week called Avoiding Life's Traps, and we're going to talk about the political trap. Who would have known that this week, and I planned this series months ago, that we would be in political turmoil in the United States? We already had been, the election and so forth. Everywhere you turn is about politics, news reports, social media, emails that you get, discussions you have with your friends and coworkers, arguments you've had with your friends and coworkers. All of this is revolving around politics. We have Republicans, we have Democrats, we have the Libertarian Party, we have the Green Party. We have the CAVE Party, C-A-V-E. That stands for Citizens Against Virtually Everything. So there's all kinds of political parties that we see in the United States. Now then it appears to me, and I know it's true, that the church is divided when it comes to politics. We have people on one side and people on the other side. We have political issues that are separating the body of Christ and dividing us as well. We have people who think things like the evil Republicans are going to take away your subsidies or those evil Democrats are going to take away your guns or the Republicans are racist and those Democrats are socialists or communists or this candidate is going to take away your school and this other candidate is going to take away your freedom. Now, there are political traps out there that Christians need to be aware of and I want to give you the trap that I want to talk about today and here it is, the trap, Jesus voted with me. Plain and simple, Jesus voted with me. What do I mean by that? I mean that we think Jesus is on our side, and we think that we're always right, and we lack humility, and we think that Jesus is on our side. Yay, he's on our side, and everyone else is wrong. We automatically assume that Jesus is for us. And political people get very adept about quoting the Bible to support their side of whatever issue that they are on. In fact, one party or one candidate, they may quote the same Bible verse, but come to very different conclusions about those things. Jesus faced a political trap. I mean, he did. He faced a political trap. I want us to read the story. It's in Matthew chapter 25. In fact, you're going to notice that the word trap is used, and Jesus is going to face an, a question that was posed to him in order to make a political point. So here we go. Matthew chapter 25, it says, Then the Pharisees went out and laid plans to trap him in his words. That's a political trap. They sent their disciples, that would be the Pharisees' disciples, to him along with the Herodians. Teacher, they said, we know that you are a man of integrity, that you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are. Tell us then, what is your opinion? Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? But Jesus, knowing their evil intent, said, you hypocrites. Why are you trying to trap me? Show me the coin used for paying the tax. They brought him a denarius, and he asked them, Whose image is this, and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. And then he said to them, So give back to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. When they heard this, they were amazed, so they left him and went away. This is a political trap. The Pharisees 
send their interns, it says their disciples, we can think of them as the interns of the Pharisees, along with the Herodians. The Herodians were people who were part of Herod's political party. And in the first century, the Pharisees and the Herodians were on opposite sides of the fence. But they combined forces because they don't like Jesus. And they're going to come with this political trap of a question to him about Caesar. Now, there are many political factions in the first century. There were Pharisees and Sadducees and a group called the Zealots and the Essenes. So there were multiple political issues and factions in the first century, just like today. And they come to Jesus and they're basically asking this, which party do you endorse? Yeah, which side are you on? And depending on the answer you give, we're going to respond to that. And so it's all a trap. Whose side are you on? Are you on the side of the Romans? Are you going to pay their tax? Or are you on our side? And which side are you on, Jesus? Now then in the first century, this paying tax was a big deal because the Romans occupied Jerusalem and the average person in Jerusalem paid 50%, get that, 50% of their money went to Rome. They paid a lot of tax. Now, where did that tax money go? Well, it went to support the lavish lifestyle of the Caesar. It went to support the wars and campaigns that the Roman army had. The taxes went to, well, if I could say it this way, the, the prostitutes and the parties that the Caesars had. And it also went to, well, things like building roads. And in fact, the Romans built more roads than about anybody. They built roads everywhere. So the taxes went to those things, and Jesus is telling them, hey, you need to give to Caesar what is due Caesar. And I just love this response because Jesus is brilliant. He's just brilliant. Scripture is awesome. And I just love this response, and they don't know what to think about it, and they, they're scratching their heads about it. Well, we thought we would trap him. We were going to make him pick sides, and then Jesus doesn't do this. He goes, whose image is it? In fact, there's a lot of meaning behind this whose image because... Because we are the image, we are created in the image of God. So we give our lives to God because he owns us. Caesar might own the money and we're going to pay our taxes, but God owns us because he bought us with the life and death of Jesus Christ. So they're asking Jesus this question as a political trap. And if you and I aren't careful, we're going to fall into a political trap. It will give, get us off site on the mission of Jesus Christ as well. Now, if the trap is Jesus always votes for me, picking sides, then here's the truth. Here it is. Jesus didn't come to take sides. He came to take over. I heard that phrase a long time ago by a professor in my seminary class. Jesus didn't come to take sides. He came to earth to take over everything. It's his side. He's not picking sides. Now, the side is called the kingdom of God. When Jesus came to earth in his ministry, often it was said phrases like this, the kingdom of God is at hand, or the kingdom of God is near, or the kingdom of God has come upon you. Why would they use phrases like that? What is this kingdom? Well, the kingdom of God is near because the king is right here. King Jesus is right here in our midst. Therefore, the kingdom of God is at hand. Now, this word kingdom of God 
it signifies the, the, the rule of God over the universe, the rule of God over the earth, the, the reign of God, the, the lordship of Jesus Christ. Now, we don't think much in terms of kingdom these days. I mean, the last time the United States had a king, his name was George, and we kicked him out. It's called the American Revolution. So when we hear words like king and kingdom, that may not connect with us. In fact, even the Romans, they weren't called the kingdom of Rome. It's called the empire of Rome. In other words, the empire of God, the, the, the rule and reign of God is coming. And Jesus didn't come to pick sides. He came to institute his kingdom upon the earth. And what can happen when we begin to choose sides is that we have this thing called a civil religion. It's a, it's a blending of church and state, which has always been a disaster in some ways. Historically, it has been. And so it caused a lot of cynicism and unhealthy uh, uh, distractions about following Jesus Christ. And without even knowing it, our loyalties can switch from being 100% loyal in our allegiance to King Jesus and then all of a sudden having an unhealthy political allegiance that doesn't help anyone. Now, there are lots of political issues to talk about. There are lots of political candidates. There are many of those things, but we need to get one thing clear. Our allegiance is to Jesus. It's not to a party. It's not to a person. It's to Jesus Christ because he is the King of kings. He's the Lord of lords. And that's where our, our loyalty lies with him. So in other words, when I align myself with King Jesus... His agenda becomes my agenda. Does that make sense? I'm not looking for a political agenda. I want to focus on God's agenda. I want to focus on what God has for me. I want to focus on the mission marching orders that he gives to us. I mean, the big story is that God loves us. But people fell away from God and rebelled and sinned. God provided a way of redemption. And that by faith alone and Christ alone, we can have eternal life. And then we can, we can join Jesus Christ in his mission and his agenda. Now, what happens is we're tempted to give too much allegiance to a political person or to a political uh, party as well. In the first century, the Jews were looking for someone to kick out the Romans. And they thought that the Messiah would be a political messiah that would kick the Romans out. They could have their own country back and have their freedom. And in fact, in one place in the Gospels, it says when Jesus was around the Sea of Galilee, the crowd came and tried to make him king right there. And he refused because that was not his purpose at that time. The hour had not yet come, he said. King Jesus is where our loyalty must exist as well. Now then, when we talk about the kingdom of God, every time we pray the Lord's Prayer, you are actually asking for the kingdom of God to be realized on the earth right now. In Matthew chapter 6, verse 9, we read the Lord's Prayer. Jesus' words says, This then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So in other words, every time you pray this prayer, you're asking for God's kingdom to come to earth. And you're going to have to ask yourself some serious questions about that. Do you really mean it? Do you want God's kingdom? 
Do you want your kingdom? Do you want a political party's kingdom? Later on in that same chapter, it's called the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said this, Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. I heard this illustration from uh, Dr. Tony Evans, one of my former professors, and I just want to share it with you, so I want to give him credit for this. So I want us to think about football for a minute. Yeah, football. Playoffs this weekend. Super Bowl's coming up. But I want you to think about football for a minute. There are two teams, and they have, uh, they're on two sides of the field. They are in combat. There's physical contact. They have two different playbooks. They're two different end zones. They have uh, two different agendas. They're trying to beat each other. And so these are two teams in conflict, very much like politics is. Two teams with two different goalposts, two different goals, two different ways of getting there as well. But there's a third team. Did you know that? There's the third team. They wear different jerseys. They're the referees. They are on the field, but they are not in that particular battle. They are in the game, but they're really not because they're playing by a different rule book. They're playing by a rule book that comes from the commissioner of football. They may get booed by the fans or cheered. They may get very little credit, but then again, they're answering to somebody else. They are the consistency amidst the chaos on the field. The referees don't take off their jerseys and put on one of the Seahawks jerseys or the Chiefs or some other team. No, 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 no. They have a different calling in life. So they are not engaged in the way that those chaotic teams are as well. They answer somewhere else. That's why it's so important for us that this book, God's Word, is such a part of our lives. We answer to this book. It comes from Jesus Christ, God's Word. It's a higher authority for us. Now, the players on the field can get penalized, and they go up and down the field, and they're trying to be winners. But the officials on the field have a different calling and a different mission. That's kind of like you and I. We have a different calling. We have a different mission. Our mission is Jesus Christ and his agenda in our lives, just like today. Now I want to ask you a question. If you're having problems in life, where do you turn? You might turn to a friend. You might turn to a self-help book. You, well, you Google it. That's what you do. When Christians have a spiritual problem, we turn to God's book. That's our ruling authority. It's nowhere else. It's the King of Kings book. That's where our allegiance is, and that's why we need to focus on this book. Now then, Jesus didn't come to take sides. He came to take over. It's the kingdom of God. Now I want to give you four points today, four observations, how this is going to play out in our, well, in our, in our discussions about politics. Now here's the first one. Number one, pursue the king and his kingdom. And I could say it this way, partner with the king. See yourself as a partner, and the Bible calls it an ambassador of Christ. I'm on his team. I have his jersey. I don't have any other jersey. It's first and foremost. Keep your eye on the Savior. Keep your eye on God. And the one thing about God's kingdom is that everybody is invited to the kingdom. It's available for everyone. 
and the kingdom will always be in conflict with the things of this earth. Psalm 103 talks about the kingdom, says, The Lord has established His throne in heaven, and His kingdom rules over all. That's the ruling nature of the kingdom. Philippians chapter 3 says, But our citizenship is in heaven. That should just stand out to us. Our citizenship is in heaven. We're strangers here. And we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables Him to bring everything under His control, that's kingdom talk, will transform our lowly bodies so that we will be like His glorious body. So the kingdom values, the values of heaven, that's why Jesus said so many times the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven, those values need to be part of our lives and lived out in our decision-making about government, about policies, and about people as well. Let me tell you something. You start putting your trust in the political parties or political appointees and so forth, you're going to be disappointed. You'll be disappointed every time. But Jesus Christ, the King of Kings, will never disappoint you. Put your full hope in Him. We should be talking about Jesus. That's where our emphasis needs to be because Jesus opens up the kingdom to everybody. It doesn't matter how old you are, young or old, men and women, little kids, you know, teenagers, adults. It doesn't matter your status in life because God's kingdom is for everybody. Not everybody will enter the kingdom, but everyone is invited to the kingdom. And so it's our mission to love people where they're at and help them follow Jesus. And when too much of our loyalty is driven to the political arena, we can lose track of God's purpose in our lives. Here's number two. Prioritize unconditional love of your brothers and sisters. In this political climate, it's easy to maybe try to avoid discussions about politics. It's just too uncomfortable because the question is going to arise, how do I love someone who voted for the other person that I voted for? How do I love someone who chose a different political party or stands on a different issue than I do? And this has caused division in the church, and it's so unfortunate because it creates an us versus them mentality. Can you love someone who you disagree with? Let me ask that even in a more direct way. Do you even want to love them? And if you don't, maybe you need to examine yourself. If I can't love my brothers and sisters in Christ, even though they have a different opinion, then maybe I need to step back and just take a look at myself. Jesus saw this coming. Jesus, it's not like he's surprised. Oh, my, I can't believe that there's disagreements in the church about politics. Oh, no, he, he knew this was coming. Uh, bar none. That's why in John chapter 17, the very night before he's crucified, he spends hours with his disciples and he shares with them a prayer request. How about that? Jesus has a prayer request. So in John chapter 17, verse 1, it says this, 
After Jesus said this, he had been teaching them, he looked toward heaven and prayed, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. And then if you kind of move down the page to verse 11, it says, I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world. And I am coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. This is incredible stuff. First of all, Jesus is praying for unity. He knew that unity would be more important than anything else in God's church. I mean, we need to show the rest of the world how we can have civility and love when we, when we disagree. If we can't do it in the church, how will we ever expect it to happen in our homes, in our schools, and in our community? So we've got to get this one right because the stakes are high. I mean, Jesus could have said, I, I pray that they will not be persecuted by the Roman government. He doesn't pray that. He could have prayed, I pray that they will not lose their jobs because of their faith. What's his one prayer request? The very night before he dies, his prayer request is that they may be one. One mind. Now, if you scroll down to verse 20, it says, My prayer is not for them alone. In other words, the 11 disciples with him. I pray also for those who will believe, that'd be us, in me through their message that all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Now, this is incredible stuff. If you notice the word so that, so that the world may, be, may believe, there is power when the church is unified. And the power comes from the gospel. The power doesn't come from clever techniques. The power doesn't come from persuasive words. The power comes from the gospel itself. The gospel of Jesus is powerful. Now, these disciples who first heard this message, I mean, they were all over the map. There were tax collectors. One was a zealot. They, it was Fisher. They were all different. I can just see what might have happened in the days after Jesus' resurrection goes, ascends into heaven that they begin to bicker and fight all the time. How effective would they be at proclaiming the message of Jesus if they spent their time bickering all the time? They wouldn't be effective. We have to guard ourselves against that. We read this again in verse 22. In John chapter 17, Jesus kind of drives the point home. I have given them the glory that you gave me that they may be one as we are one. What's the theme? Unity. Verse 23. I in them, and you and me, so that they may be brought to a little bit of unity. No, it doesn't say that. It says complete unity, full unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Circle that phrase, complete unity. It's not partial. It's not a little bit. It's complete unity. And I think the unity is unity of purpose. The unity that will drive believers is that we rally around Jesus and the gospel. Here's what I mean. If we get our focus on what Jesus did for us, that he came, the very people he loved drug, pulled, dragged him out of the city and crucified him, he died, and then he rose again from the dead. That resurrection moment was so powerful that they couldn't stop talking about it because they knew 
that it meant that we could have eternal life. The gospel solves the issues we face. You see, here's the problem. We think political things will solve our issues. Political things will not solve our issues. The gospel of Jesus Christ will solve issues. Stop trusting in the political things more than you trust Jesus. I'm not saying don't be involved in politics. I'm not saying don't be aware and informed. Make sure your first allegiance is to Jesus Christ and his kingdom and that you take seriously that we need to love unconditionally people in our own church family. Let's just think this as, a, as an example. Let's say that you and I go to lunch and you buy. <laughs> you, we go out to lunch. Well, when COVID is over, we can go out to lunch. So we go out to lunch. And we go out to the restaurant and we sit down at a table and we order and the, the waiter begins to complain about the cook. He says, man, the cook is just such a jerk here. And you go, oh, well, that's interesting. And then uh, another restaurant employee comes by and puts the plates on the table and stuff and says, I can't believe the waiter. You know, he doesn't split the tips with me and he's supposed to. So you have this little bickering going on inside the restaurant. Do you think we want to go back there again for the food? No. No, of course not. And when the church gets involved in this kind of stuff that distracts from the gospel, we're in dangerous, dangerous territory. We need to have this unity in spite of our diversity. John 13, 34, Jesus said this, A new command I give you. It's new. Love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. Get this in verse 35. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Is that clear to you? I think Jesus is crystal clear here. He said it. He meant it. We need to love one another as Jesus loved us. The bar got pretty high right there. We need to love people, and there are no conditions. That's why I said earlier, it's an unconditional love of others. There are no loopholes. You can't say, well, they're, they're not really my neighbor. There's no contingencies here. There's nothing that would enable us to say, well, I don't want to love other people. There's nothing here that would, would be an exception for me. I need to take this seriously as I have loved you. And in the first century, the very first generation of Jesus followers, they put this into practice. They loved people unconditionally. There were, in the early church, people of many different, many different languages, many different countries, many different cultures. And across those lines of, well, of diversity came unity because they focused on Jesus and they lived out loving other people. I mean, sometimes this is hard stuff. Just take your personal family. See, sometimes the people in your family are the hardest people to love because your spouse drives you nuts because they don't, well, clean the dishes or they don't do something that's, that's just irritating to you and over time it becomes difficult or your children or your parents some of you who are listening to me, you, you, you live at home and your parents are driving you nuts. And sometimes it's hard to love the people you're closest to, and that can happen in God's family, and we need to make sure that we love the brothers and the sisters who are in the faith. Hey, the church is either going to blow it here or we're going to be shine like stars here. 
and it's going to be on how we love people within the church body. We can't allow these things to, um, to divide us. You know what lasts, for, lasts forever? Well, Jesus lasts forever. He's eternal, right? This book lasts forever. Yeah, the, this Bible lasts. People last forever, either in heaven or hell. So people last forever. Do you know what doesn't last forever? Political parties. Political parties don't last forever. I got some. Is anybody a Whig? You even know what political party that was? It ended in, I got it right here, 1854. Anybody a Federalist? They ended in, in 1824. Did you know there was a party called the Anti-Masonic Party? That one lasted for 10 years, 1828 to 1838. So I did a little research on that all-trusted website, Wikipedia, and it says there are 97 defunct political parties in the United States. There are 60 current political parties in the United States. I want to tell you something. Political parties are not eternal. Don't be basing your hope on the politics come and go. Jesus is eternal. Politics are temporary. So if that's true, then let's make sure we do not mistreat. Do not mistreat anybody in your church family, either online, on social media, or any other way. Practice unconditional love. Galatians 6.2 says, carry each other's burden, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. You know what the law of Christ is? It's loving your neighbor as yourself. And how do I do that? I carry their burden. And then in James 2.8 says, if you really keep the royal law in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. The same thing, the law of Christ, the royal law. Love one another. It's the new covenant of Jesus Christ. Now, here's the thing. Are you mature enough not to allow our differences to divide us? If you're allowing political differences to divide you from your brothers and sisters, you are acting spiritually immature. Number three, when it comes to politics and the kingdom of God, put on the faith filter first. So what do I mean by that? Well, I think we need to view every political candidate, every political issue, every governmental issue through the filter of our faith. We begin with our faith. Another way to say that is the Bible is my filter. The Bible, the scripture is. Or I could say this, having a biblical worldview informs my opinions about the political process. It informs my opinions about policies and laws and legislations, okay? And we need to put this biblical worldview into place because it changes things. It changes our communities. Let me give you an example. Uh, Aristotle, the philosopher, his, uh, he lived in about 350 B.C. His philosophy is called Aristotelian philosophy. And one of the things that he was wrote extensively about was what I would call fatalism, that that every little movement is determined by the gods. And Aristotle went on to say that slavery was predetermined or preordained, and some people are ordained to be slaves all their lives. In other words, he was kind of into the caste system. Some people are born for this role, others are born for that role, and there's this group of people that are, well, born to be slaves. And he said, 
it was just self-evident it would be that way. Well, during Jesus' day in the Roman Empire, there were millions of slaves. In fact, one estimate I read from a historian said there might be up to 40 million slaves. I think the point is there were a lot of slaves in the first century. Now, people became slaves for various reasons in the first century. The Roman Empire would conquer a country and those people would become slaves. Or if I owed you some money, I would become your slave. So there, 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 were, all these, there were a couple different reasons people became slaves. In fact, in the United States, uh, slavery was based on racism, which was a new thing. Before, slavery really wasn't based on racism, and that wasn't until the Britain and the, and the United States. Very, very different. Well, what began to happen was that in the Roman Empire, as Christians began to speak into issues, a guy named Augustine, St. Augustine, the theologian, in about 380 A.D., he began to write that people created in the image of God have dignity and no one should be the slave of another person. He said that mankind, men and women, were meant to well, subdue the earth, not to be subdued by each other. And he quoted lots of scripture and had it very well thought out. And eventually, that impacted the way that the Roman world in, uh, thought about racism as well. So that's a faith filter, a worldview that impacted the community. And in this case, the world. I'll give you another one. In the ancient Roman Empire, they would practice infanticide. That's killing of babies. Or they would just leave babies out on the street or on a wall or in an alleyway. If They would just discard babies. So if you had a child, you didn't want the child for whatever reason, a birth defect, or you wanted a, a, a boy, you had a girl, or even the other way around, you would just leave the child out in the open. It was the first century way of doing abortion. That's what was happening in the Roman Empire. It was called exposure as well. Well, Christians put on a faith filter, a biblical worldview, and over time, that began to change. And what Christians did, they put their faith in action, and they would rescue these babies. And they would love these kids. They would provide for those kids. They would care for that child. They would raise that child out of love. And it began to impact the Roman Empire. So in about 320 AD, the laws began to change in the Roman Empire. The Romans were really good at making lots of laws. And then Valentine, the Roman emperor, in about 370 AD, he made it a capital punishment if he left a baby out to exposure to die or infanticide, killing children. Why did that happen in the Roman Empire? Well, because Christians looked at the Bible, put their faith filter on, and said, these things are wrong. As we put on the faith filter, we need to make sure that we have that first. And then our political filter is several steps behind that biblical worldview. We don't take a political filter and then lay it on the Bible. We take the Bible and then we apply it to the world we live in. We don't want to get that mixed up. And what happens is that we get, we get, we get distracted from the main thing that God would have for us. My faith is anchored to a person, not to a policy. 
Okay, we need to get this straight. My faith, my trust is in a person, Jesus, not in policies, not in values. Certainly, I have values, but they're all determined by Jesus. So that's where my faith is. Luke 16, 16 says, The law and the prophets were in force until John, that'd be John the Baptist. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God has been proclaimed, and everyone is urged to enter into it. When we begin to have conflict on political issues, we run the risk of turning people away from the kingdom of God. Here's the fourth thing I think is so important for us today. Pray for governmental leaders. You need to pray for the government. Paul was writing to Timothy, a young pastor in the city of Ephesus, and he writes these words. I urge then, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for all people. And then he clarifies this. Verse 2, for kings and all those in authority. Why? Why would we pray for kings and political people? Well, he finished it, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and in all holiness. I was reading through my Bible this week. I can't find one place where we're told to complain about political leaders. I can't find that. And I want to tell you, I'm probably as guilty about complaining and whining as anybody. But what we are commanded is to pray for them to pray for the president, to pray for Congress, to pray for our mayor, governor, uh, uh, first responders, whoever. We're to pray for them. And instead of cursing our brothers and sisters in Christ on Twitter and complaining about people's stances, we should be praying for our country and for our government. We have a different president we have a future king coming. His name is Jesus. There will be a new heaven and a new earth, a new Jerusalem which comes down out of heaven. This world will be transformed. It will be a city of God that will never grow dark because his glory shines here. There will never be a police siren. There will never be a shooting. There will never be a theft. There will never be domestic violence. There will never be hunger. There will never be crying, the Bible says, because we're going to be living with the king as well. There will be no locked doors, no deadbolts, no chains, no fences. You won't have a safe at your house. There will be no need for banks. No one's going to steal your money, okay? It will be a city that will be perfect because we have the king. Some people want that kingdom, but they don't want the king. We want the king, King Jesus. And then the kingdom will be upon us as well. That's what we hope for, because that is eternal. And everything around us is temporary. So that's why right now, during this political upheaval, riots, shootings, I mean, various communities, things are going on. Families are split over politics. And there's a sense of, I don't even like that other person now. We need to rise above the fray 
And that's what Jesus did. He rose above it. When he was asked about which side are you on, he said, I'm not taking sides because I came to take over. And that's called the kingdom of God. I'm going to pray. I want to invite you to pray with me. Because I think more than ever, as a church, we need to be unified around praying for our community and praying for our government. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray for our government. We pray for our leaders. We pray that you would have your own way in our government. But more than ever, God, we pray that you would be molding and shaping our hearts so that we could have our 100% allegiance towards you. Maybe some of you need to repent right now. Repent over your name-calling, over your lack of love for other people. And you can do that right now. Say, God, I need to have a change of heart. That's what repentance means, a change of heart. And then maybe you need to ask God to infuse you with the power to love people in your own church family unconditionally. Lord, we pause to pray that your kingdom would come. In Jesus' name, amen.